don't just sell the products ourselves. No, sir, you're Bob. We recruit and manage teams that work under us. Now, Irene and I started eight months ago, and already we're pulling in 50000 a year in revenues. We're the number four distributor in Southern California. You got that one, babe. And by March, we might be number three. Now, as law enforcement officers, Irene and I, we cannot recruit distributors from inside the force. It's against the rules. So what we do is we look for people in other industries. Like the entertainment industry. Uh, wait, wait. You want us to sell Amway? Ever feel like you're not going anywhere? Like you're not succeeding? Like you keep trying? And not really failing, because a spectacular failure might be a little respite from just pushing on a rope and not moving. When I teach my kids sports like tennis, baseball, even soccer to some extent, I use the metaphor of having your feet stuck in cement. Sometimes it can feel like that in the workplace where you're not moving your feet, you're moving your upper body and thrashing, flailing, but uh, you can't seem to get any purchase on the thing you're trying to achieve. You can hear that sound in William Fickner's character in the movie Go, in that scene we played in the open. Sitting at the table is Jay Moore, the comedian who's pretty hilarious in everything he's in, always plays pretty strong personalities, and a guy by the name of Scott Wolf, and Jane Krakowski from 30 Rock. She plays Irene, William Fickner's character's wife, the law enforcement officers in that movie, and the guys in the quote-unquote entertainment industry, Jay Moore and Scott Wolf's characters, who feature prominently throughout the movie as a, a set of main characters amongst the ensemble, which that cast also includes a whole bunch of other people like Timothy Oliphant, uh, who's always remarkable, even in the bad movies he's in, uh, Tay Diggs, and uh, again, a number of other people. Oh, KF, Katie Holmes. Almost forgot Katie Holmes, uh, A-list celebrity that she is. Anyway, all of these characters in Go seem to not be really going anywhere. But, of course, trouble ensues, as it does, and that's the premise of the movie, which is 1999. And uh, I don't know if it holds up. It was pretty great at the time. The other day, it dawned on me that even though I've won the genetic lottery in many ways, and I don't just mean the lottery of being born in the United States and in a great time of technology, and I would say uh, really great health advances. Of course, we're in the middle of coronavirus quarantine right now, so uh, maybe we'll leave it to people a century from now to uh, proclaim victory over illness. But I mean genetic lottery in the sense that I don't have any crazy health conditions. I was blessed with better than perfect eyesight, uh, things like that, that would have held me back from the Naval Academy and held me back from the SEAL teams, especially back in those days where 
the military looked more skeptically on surgery for your eyes and, and things like that. But despite winning that supposed genetic lottery, it occurred to me that I might have adult onset allergies because I, I tend to sneeze a lot o- over the last few weeks. And uh, the only explanation I could come up with, because I don't think sneezing is a, a big top symptom of coronavirus and I'm not otherwise sick, um, that it must be some sort of allergies. The other thing, though, that I've been thinking about lately, more relevant to this episode is maybe I have adult onset ADD. I feel like I was able to focus as a kid. I didn't have any trouble in school and was able to concentrate on activities. But then again, I played mostly sports. I wasn't really an indoor kid. So it's perhaps a lot easier to focus when there's sort of a dynamic physical environment, teammates, ball, you know, the things that make up a sport, competition. But I feel maybe I have adult onset ADD and that in in times where I've worked for big companies that that has uh, been not the most fruitful thing. I came across a quote the other day, which was, I always try to do something nobody else has done. Now, that's not necessarily the most quotable quote, but uh, it is as important uh, and maybe more profound than it might seem given the plain language and the structure of that sentence. That quote in many ways goes against the prevailing corporate attitude towards doing things that no one else has done. Now, even though companies want their employees and their overall company to do things that no one else has done, generally they're not looking for their employees to individually within the company do things that no one else has done. It's kind of ironic, right? That in an organization that is trying to achieve innovative things that often they want you to stick to their rules and previous ways of doing things. It's the kind of contradiction that only Dilbert is adequate at explaining because trying to address it through some sort of discourse or logic uh, just does not capture the inanity of the thing. The absurdity, we talked about Catch-22 in the last episode, episode number 18, Method. There's this refrain that I have heard from managers and probably a lot of other people have heard in their corporate careers if they have a brain and a heart and some creativity, which is disparagingly said to you as, don't go after the shiny objects, which I suppose can be sound advice if you are seeking a very long-term career and security above all else. And you don't necessarily care as much about the mission or creating something new. But then again, there's a balance. And if there's any song that can possibly bring one back to uh, that center from looking after the shiny objects, seeking the new and the sexy all the time, Perhaps it's the classic shiny from Moana. If you haven't seen Moana, I think even if you're an adult, 
Uh, it might be worth seeing. It's uh, definitely palatable if you have kids. It's one of the better Disney movies for sure. And one of the best Disney princess movies. Uh, it's pretty awesome. And you've got The Rock playing the demigod Maui, who's referenced in the song Shiny, which is sung by a giant crab named Tamatoa, played by Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords. If there's anything that appeals to kids who seek shiny objects, those with ADD or simple average kids anywhere, it would be video games. And some of the earliest video games, like Space Invaders, Asteroids, are classics and have influenced all sorts of pop culture outside of the video game sphere. I've said before that I'm not that much of a gamer. Uh, I'm basically a zero gamer as an adult. I played a lot of Atari and then subsequently some of the Nintendo systems when I was a kid, but grew out of them by late high school, probably. Our earliest video game system was an Atari 7800, which was quite advanced for the time. Another thing that really appeals to kids with ADD or ADHD is Chuck E. Cheese. All the bells and lights and colored casino floors. They probably pump oxygen in through the ventilators like supposedly they do in Vegas just to keep the kids primed and ready to drop quarters in machines. It is interesting, though, that both of these attention deficit solutions or enablers, probably is a better description, were created by the same guy, Nolan Bushnell, founder of Atari and Chuck E. Cheese. There's a great How I Built This episode with Guy Raz. If you haven't tuned into that podcast, it's amazing. If you have any entrepreneurial ambitions whatsoever, the show is extremely well done. Of course, Guy Raz has a lot of experience in public radio and, and just is, is phenomenal. That quote that I cited earlier before the break there is by Nolan Bushnell. Interestingly, Atari was named after a check-like position in Go, meaning check as in chess, a position like that in Go. We talked about how Mao played Go and its comparison to chess and checkers in episode number 14, Chasing Tail. Apparently, Atari wasn't Bushnell's first choice. He and his partner, Dabney, were going to name the company Syzygy. Pretty nerdy name there. But apparently, Syzygy was already in use uh, by two things in their area. One was a roofing company, and the other was, I quote from Wikipedia, in use by a candle company owned by a Mendocino hippie commune. Atari 
Atari just didn't build game systems. They also created software. They created the games themselves. One of Bushnell and Atari's hits, one of Bushnell's and Atari's hits was the game Pong, which seems so simplistic now compared to video games, but was a uh, breakout hit, pun fully intended, because breakout was also a really popular game that was similar to Pong. There was a lot of copying in the era and kind of blatant stealing of ideas. In fact, the actual genesis of Atari was that Bushnell wanted to start a company producing games based on this game Space War that he and other students played in college. And in Space War, just like Space Invaders, Asteroids, some of these games, the game is designed so that things are coming down the screen at you and you shoot them away, right? There's an interesting question about what if you envisioned work and people in it as parts of such a game? What if you envisioned yourself as a person navigating a game scenario, but a game scenario that had algorithms that were defined by somebody else and speeds, movements that were actually foreseeable if you were an omniscient person or a game designer? What if the entire course of a company and the people within it was predestined? Predestination is a religious concept. I remember when I learned about it in high school. Funny enough, growing up Catholic, I never learned about this religious concept as a kid going to Sunday school or even Catholic school for my middle school years, never came up. It was mostly take communion, do confession, sit through boring songs, that kind of thing. Kneel, sit, stand, kneel, sit, stand. When I learned about predestination in world history in high school, it was made to seem as though John Calvin, I think his first name was John, founder of Calvinism, little ego there maybe, that he maybe invented this concept and made it a part of his religion, but actually goes to figure the idea of predestination is such a fundamental concept that it dates back to the earliest days of philosophy and the earliest days of the Christian church. The idea is this, if God is omniscient, then he knows what will happen in the future. Thus, I'm probably skipping a bunch of steps of logic, so I apologize. Thus, the future is already known, and your fate as a sinner, and whether you go to heaven or hell, is already also known, so that anything you do doesn't actually change your fate. So there's all sorts of questions and philosophical debates that, that revolve around this idea that are related to free will. So the question is, if you can picture yourself and all of those that you work with, your team, your peers, your boss, if you picture all of yourselves as aliens and space invaders, 
or little blocks falling down from the heavens in this black screen that you have to shoot down. If you picture all of those things as objects within a software game and that your success or failure is already known, that you have no free will, what would you do differently? The truth is, 99% of effort is wasted, according to Naval Ravikant. And I tend to agree. Most people and most companies waste their time and their resources, their people. There's so many needless meetings. There's so many misplaced priorities. There are so many things that don't work. There are so many contingencies and emergencies and bugs that no one sees coming. There are a lot of market forces that act against those previous plans. And so in reality, most of what you do is wasted. And that's especially true on a day-to-day basis. I mean, unless you are actively serving clients, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer. Granted, that's a non-scalable profession that doesn't relate to a lot of the things we're talking about here. And it's also not a big company, which is most related to the content of this episode. If you're one of those people, then yes, you are making a difference and 99% of your effort probably is not wasted. But the reality is that those who worked in large teams, including the military, waste an inordinate amount of time. So what are the things that really do matter? How can you change the outcome of the game? This notion of predestination when it comes to work really hammers home the fundamentals. Fundamentals like what game you choose in the first place. The way a machine learning model will work is it will evaluate and predict outcomes based upon data and based upon features as they're called. So you could look at, let's say, customer behavior and financial transactions they make and try and predict what they will do in the future. But it's easy to forget that you have features too. You have certain behaviors. You have a certain appearance. You have a certain way of talking. You have a certain way of writing. And we like to picture ourselves as the ones driving the car. And everyone else could be bots. We talked about bots in the Ready Player One episode, episode number nine. Bots being computer players. But of course, you're not a computer player. You're a human with agency, right? Ray Dalio in the book Principles, which I apologize for longtime listeners. I've mentioned a lot, but there are a lot of good nuggets in there. One is this idea of separating yourself from yourself. So you have this strategic planner, the executive, who's deciding what things you will do and why overall. But then you have you, the worker, 
you're the person executing and it's important to separate these people. And then the executive, the strategist, will also evaluate you, yourself, the worker, about whether you're doing a great job or not. And in my own life over the last, let's just say, few months, I've started to try and separate myself out as when I'm working on the podcast, I need to figure out what episodes I'm going to do, how I'm going to promote it, what I'm trying to achieve overall. But when it comes time to actually figure out what I want to talk about, figure out how I'm going to do that, and then actually do it, I need to be much more in execution mode. I can't be thinking about the strategy at that point. And hopefully, I will deliver something of excellent value for you. If not, I need to hold myself accountable. So dividing yourself is a key skill, and, and at least to me, I'm assuming for the rest of us, does not come naturally. But if you divide yourself, then you take yourself to this executive strategy level, we can probably all look at ourselves and know that even though it seems like we're driving the car, adapting to every situation, we all have these scripts and templates and behaviors that really aren't that changeable day to day. I'm all about growth mindset, but the fact is that the way you and I greet people, the way you and I conduct our business, our priorities, our values are not going to change that much day to day. And maybe they shouldn't change that often. It's probably better that way to have consistency in our lives and to be predictable to those around us, to be a known quantity. Otherwise, we'll just come off as flighty and suspicious. But if then those things, many of the aspects, many of the features of who we are, who Shri is, if those things are fixed, then they can be regarded as things that a model, that an overall game we enter, will just crunch the numbers on and we'll flow through that arcade game and we'll have predictable losses and successes. So this has enormous impact, obviously, as we said earlier, for what game you choose to play, who you choose to work for, what career you choose, right? This is the whole purpose of competitive strategy, especially as laid out by Harvard professor Michael Porter, who I had the privilege of participating in some case discussions with in his landmark book. Sounds pretentious, but I think any one in the business literature would, would classify it as a landmark book, competitive strategy. The whole idea is that so much of success or failure is determined by which industry you enter as a new company or which industry you're in as an existing company. His five forces model, such things as barriers to entry, supplier power, customer power, I can't remember the other two offhand. These forces will do more to determine whether you succeed or fail than the actions of any individual, even the CEO. So for instance, if you are graduating college and you enter an industry that is about to peak in five years, chances are you're going to have a great 10 years, maybe 20 years of a career Whereas if you choose an industry that maybe just passed its prime as you're exiting college and uh, is going to become a commodity industry or uh, regulated out of, out of business by the government, something like that, 
are you really going to have a prosperous career or are you going to be looking to change industries at some point in the future, even though you could have maybe foreseen that? This is also why strategy consultants get paid so much when they are hired externally and why they get so much attention with the CEO internally because they are dealing with fundamental things. And few others besides the CEO are dealing with fundamentals in an organization. Even, even frankly, HR. An analogy to the military would be choosing your terrain. You choose the battle that you want to fight. You choose where to meet the enemy and you choose your terrain because the terrain will predict who's going to succeed in a much bigger way than a lot of other factors. The Warrior Poet is a lot about leadership. Of course, it's a lot about nothing too. And this concept of predestination in the workplace has impacts for leadership as well. If you're in charge of an organization within a company or the company itself, you've already chosen your industry, but factors such as how you organize and how you resource will have much bigger impact than the fundamental day-to-day decisions. That's why things like culture are so important. And that's why organizational design is so important as well. Although, frankly, this gets overlooked so much in my experience and the companies I've been in. Organizational design is an afterthought. Most leaders and managers do not have any actual opinion on how things should be organized, ideally. Most people are not adept at resolving conflicts that arise due to faulty organizational design. And the people who can really see it are the people who are at the quote-unquote working level day-to-day. And they'll have all kinds of ideas about organizational design, but the average leader does not believe they are empowered to make that change. Or again, as we talked about in the episode week, are afraid to upset anyone in their organization. And so don't make a change organizationally. I wonder, as a last thought, can one apply this notion of predestination to negotiation? In Chris Voss's book, he's all over the place now. He's in Instagram ads uh, all the time for these premium masterclasses. So chances are you've heard of him. I think a couple of years ago, maybe this would be a novel uh, book for you. But in his book, Never Split the Difference, former FBI hostage negotiator, Chris Voss lays out a whole bunch of really sound negotiating principles. I've tried them myself and they do work. And I suspect that if we look at the terrain of any given negotiation and how you can succeed, you could view it in that same predestined manner. And maybe that would encourage you or any one of us in that position to really change a lot of our natural behaviors and what we might do uh, based on 
just knowing that maybe success or failure is already set from the beginning in, unless we sort of markedly change our approach and follow and create or modify ourselves or the game itself to have the features that are consistent with success. And now is that time of the program where we get all the way wet. We're going to get full benefit here today. In the footnotes section, Nolan Bushnell has a whole bunch of quotations that are really good. The one that I gave you in the beginning was most relevant to me lately and most relevant to this episode. But he's got, got some great words of wisdom here. One is, hire for passion and intensity. There's training for everything else. And I might just be looking for sort of confirmation bias, but I have always believed in the same thing. And we're going to do a couple episodes related to these concepts. One is about passion mismatch in the future. So please don't miss that. Another one is going to be about the phases of internalization of words of wisdom like this. Another concept related to HR, I talked about HR maybe not working on fundamental things uh, enough or even doing it well when they do. I've seen this, again, number of companies where HR, you think they're working on something important, but when you go to them with an idea, they, they really don't have the ability or the sort of creativity to, to be on board with any fundamental changes compared to what they learned in HR school, if that's a thing. I don't think it is. Another Bushnell quote is, one of the big concerns I have is that most of the HR departments in a lot of companies are hiring away from creativity and they don't know it. For instance, they are requiring everybody to have a college degree. The most creative people I know couldn't deal with college. Uh, I mean, I couldn't deal with the Naval Academy, but I, I, did, <laughs> I did end up staying. Um, but uh, college sounds like a, a pretty great experience compared to the Naval Academy. Uh, technically a college, but not really. Finally, I'll link to some of his other quotations in the show notes, but my personal favorite is the following. People like secrets. Creative people really like secrets. Footnote number two, there's some interesting facts that I came across about Space Invaders, one of the all-time video game hits, especially in those early days. Apparently, a bunch of legendary figures in the industry credit Space Invaders with getting into video game development. Those include the creator of Donkey Kong, Mario, and Zelda, which is the same guy. Uh, apparently, it's Shigeru Miyamoto. Also, the creators of Doom, which was a big deal back in the mid-90s, maybe, early 90s. Uh, I don't know if anyone knows what that is now. 
Space Invaders was invented by Tomohiro Nishikado. And Mr. Nishikado, or Mr. Tomohiro, sorry, I forget which uh, is the family name in Japanese. I'll, uh, I'll flog myself accordingly. Apparently, he spent a year on the game and had to design his own hardware to make the software work. And I, that's not an issue today, but uh, if you watch anything like Halt and Catch Fire, which is an awesome show about startups during that era, um, it's, it's obvious and, and, and apparent that at that time, you really ran into a lot of constraints about what you wanted to do that required people to literally invent their own hardware. Finally, uh, another interesting fact is that apparently Nishikado found the game slowed down significantly when there were large numbers of enemies on screen and then sped up when the player had destroyed most of them. And so rather than try and fix this, he made it a feature of the game. And so as you got down to your last couple Space Invaders, the game would get that much faster. And uh, I remember playing this firsthand back in the day. Like, that was one of the things that made the game so exciting. I wonder how many of us can turn little bugs in our life into features. Footnote number three, I talked about the movie Go earlier. And... The cast is pretty stacked for what was sort of an indie cult-ish movie. It was like in the vein of some of the Quentin Tarantino movies, though not quite. The guy Scott Wolf, who plays this character Adam in the movie, which by the way, I'm going to link to the early part of that scene, which I didn't play because the scene lasts forever and there's a lot of awkward, quiet moments. Check it out on YouTube. The beginning is actually hilarious when Jay Moore's character makes up the excuse why they have to leave prior to Fickner's Amway pitch. If you look him up on IMDb, show notes, please, the guy looks like a mixture of Michael J. Fox, Hugh Grant, and Ethan Hawke. And I, I, I don't really want to picture how that mix would happen. Maybe some of you are into that. No judgment. I also want to say Scott Bayo, although it's more of an association of like name and height and era and other characteristics. Um, but his face doesn't really look like, like him, but uh, it's kind of like comparing temper trap and passion pit as bands. Like they're, they're not really the same. Their music is quite different, but there's something about the era they were in and the rhythm of the names that result in a lot of people confusing them. Scott Wolf was also in Nancy Drew, which if you've got kids, amazing kids movie. And interestingly enough, was engaged to Alyssa Milano, who at one point, not too long ago, in an online profile, I had listed as my childhood celebrity crush. Finally, all those fills you heard throughout the episode were from the same song, Needing Getting, live at Club Nokia by the band OK Go. I have kind of a like-hate relationship. Love-hate would be a little too strong. A like-hate relationship with OK Go. 
their music is quite catchy and more than anything, their videos are extremely creative, very well produced, very well choreographed and are just super clever, kind of nerdy at times, but uh, in a good way, in a way that really uh, you can't look away the whole time. And um, it's kind of an, an aha moment every time you see one of their new videos. And uh, I talked a lot about kids this episode. If, if you have kids, uh, the videos are family friendly and super interesting. In the music video for Needing Getting, they drive a car that has some sort of metal thing sticking out of the side of the, the window. And they basically play chimes by driving fast. And all these chimes, I don't know, it might be like thousands of them along this racetrack. And they play all of the uh, main guitar that you heard in those fills by physically driving the car through these chimes. Pretty cool. The band apparently is named after an art teacher who would say, okay, go, when they were about to draw at an arts camp where they met at the age of 11. I will say the reason I say like hate is because their music tends to be much more on the poppier side than, than is my taste. And some of it is a little repetitive formulaic in, in my opinion, the lyrics sometimes are not that clever, but in needing getting and a few other songs, the choruses are, are, and, and the main part of the music is actually uh, real, really catchy. I found though that I think the music I like best from them are the ones that aren't the hits. They're not the ones that are going to have millions of likes on Spotify. You're going to have to dig a little deeper some of their live albums or the cuts that have the one bar in popularity on Spotify, I think are some of the best. I found one here we'll play out on. It's called All Is Not Lost. And this is the Keys and Crates remix. I'll have it linked in the show notes as always. Even though you may feel like your feet are stuck in cement, you may feel like your future is predestined Remember, you're a leader. And even though you may not be really driving all the time, even though there may be a lot of wasted effort day to day, chin up, champ, pick the game you want to play, focus on the fundamentals, focus on the strategic factors and the things that are really going to give you and your team leverage. As the song says, all is not lost, amigo. Warrior Poet is a property of Rainiac Productions. If you like The Warrior Poet, there's more great content on Instagram. Follow Shri, The Warrior Poet, on Instagram. That's S-R-I, The Warrior Poet. You can also get to know me on a personal level by following Shri, actually, on Instagram as well. The Warrior Poet is produced by Laddie, with special contributions by Spoonman and me, Shri.
No, 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 no. Kevin, me na dua. Spita. <laughs>